Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. And welcome to the 60s. Oh yeah, it's our first film of 1960. Austin Powers. (laughs) I don't know. Not not for a while. Mad Men. Yeah, we're in that like Mad Men period where like the 60s are still pretty much the 50s. But maybe not for horror? 1960 is going to be a big year for horror, but yeah. for our first film of the 60s, we're basically still copying recent trends. Okay. It's not like they know that like big things are coming, yeah, so no. we should change, right? Not like at all. it makes total sense that we're still going off of the same trends that we have been. So tonight's film is The Flesh and the Fiends from 1960, directed by John Gilling. And despite the title, which sounds like this might be a movie about sex demons. Um, <laughs> this is actually a movie about the most famous of resurrection men, William Burke and William Hare, who we've seen a lot of movies like inspired by the resurrection men of the 19th century with sort of the specter of Burke and Hare hanging over them. Um, but we haven't actually seen a movie about Burke and Hare. Yeah. The closest we got was um, The Body Snatcher in mm-hmm. 1945. But even that is technically a, an adaptation of a short story inspired by these murders. Yeah. Corridors of Blood with Christopher Lee and Boris Karloff was also a take on the murder for corpses business. But I feel like it's really interesting the way that these murders have inspired a lot of movies, but we haven't really seen the story itself play out, um, even in like the context of a historical drama. Well, again, my knowledge of these movies would be in the horror genre, so I wouldn't know for historical dramas or anything, but we haven't seen really anything that's like actually inspired by real events. Like we haven't seen mm-hmm. any Jack the Ripper kind of movies. Mm-hmm. It's almost like when horror started, it's trying to attempt to be respectable by adapting these books and stuff. And it's almost like, oh, it would be too garish to actually base this off of a real life true crime. Yeah, absolutely. There was a Jack the Ripper movie uh, around this time period from the same producers as this movie, Tempion Films, which was actually written by Jimmy Sangster. But it wasn't a horror movie. It was a like detective movie basically it's one of the first movies to like play with this theory of like jack the ripper was a doctor and Mm. he was like doing the murders because he wanted like revenge on prostitutes for like reasons like i think his son died of syphilis or something he's like an old doctor i don't know the point is is that like it very clearly disqualified itself from being a movie for the podcast with that said i feel like it's been a while and maybe a history lesson on these guys would be warranted. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, so the first time that I talk about Burke and Hare and Robert Knox is in episode 130 on the body snatcher, which was uh, from Robert Wise in 1945. For those curious, that is currently ranked to number 17. That's high. So as Ben said, Burke and Hare are William Burke and William Hare, and over the course of about 10 months in 1828 in Edinburgh in Scotland, uh, they would do about uh, nearly 20 murders, all with the goal of then selling those corpses for money. Mm -hmm. For those listeners who are new to the idea of what resurrection men are and the idea of selling corpses for money, let me kind of take you back. In the UK, so Scotland is part of that, um, in 1752, there was a uh, bill that passed called the Murder Act, which said that, you know, at this point, dissection for learning about anatomy or anything like that, because you were destroying the body after death, like there were fears that 
that would affect your entry into heaven. And Mm. it was very taboo, even if it was like for a scientific purpose. So the murder act in 1752 said that anyone who was condemned to death, you get to dissected. Like your body just goes to science. End of story. Um, as I said, to teach anatomy, you need corpses. And uh, this is where I'm going to introduce a guy named Robert Knox. He taught anatomy in Edinburgh um, in like the early 1800s. And he was a leader in the field of anatomy. He was responsible for the theory of transcendental anatomy. And so he's the person who you want to go to to learn. He taught under what was called the French method, a very common method of teaching. But that means that uh, each student gets their own corpse. Oh. So there's a high demand for corpses. And around the 1820s is when we also see a increase in people applying to be doctors. Um, and so, you know, medical student enrollment and a decrease in executions, which means there's a demand for corpses which led to the resurrection men where they would basically see that someone has been buried, go dig it up in the dead of night and then take that body to be sold uh, to, like directly to a doctor. So that way they would have an example for dissection. This was also called body snatching and it became so common that people would hire basically security guards to watch over bodies until burial. And this is also when you see the rise in the occupation of gravekeeper. Mm. So someone who's around to keep an eye on the dead. In November 1827, William Hare discovered a lodger that he had had died. Uh, So he was like, well, no one cares who this guy is. And he delivered the body to Robert Knox and was paid seven pounds and ten shillings which is about a thousand British pounds today. Wow. So it's a pretty good racket, pretty good way to make business. So Hare enlisted his friend Burke to start murdering people. And so the pair would have up to 16 further transactions between themselves and Robert Knox. At this point, the pair were caught. Hare, despite being the mastermind behind this entire plot, turned on Burke and got immunity as a result. Burke, for his part, was hanged, and thanks to the Murder Act, it meant that his body went into the science lab and was dissected. Robert Knox was not persecuted, because according to him, he didn't know where the bodies were coming from. He was just accepting them. And it wasn't, like, outlawed for doctors to accept corpses. It was kind of like a look-the-other-way kind of situation. Um, But he did later resign and leave to go teach in England and further abroad. So it's not like he was run out of town, but I think he kind of was like, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to leave Scotland for a bit. Right. Now, the trial of Burke and Hare in 1828 swayed public opinion so much to lead to the 1832 Anatomy Act, which would also cause the end of the Murder Act. Um, The Anatomy Act stated that when someone dies, including by hanging, the bodies can be donated as long as no relatives disagree upon it. So Mm. everyone agrees that, yeah, take the body. Now we can use that body for science. Further, only licensed teachers could take custody of bodies. And therefore, it meant that you could kind of track and monitor who's accepting bodies. Where did these bodies come from? Just so that way there's like a little bit more uh, discretion used when accepting corpses. Mm-hmm. Now, this was a bit of a watershed case, and there were a lot of resurrection men. Burke and Hare were just the ones who got caught for um, well, like, moving the process along. Well, like, yeah, they were murdering people. And I don't yes. know, maybe other resurrection men were doing that, but generally what the resurrection men were doing was they were grave robbing, which was like its own crime. Yes. But not the same as murdering. Yes. To get the bodies. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it was the fact that people were like, oh, damn, some people are resorting to murder because of this like uh, demand for Mm -hmm. cadavers. Maybe we should reconsider this law. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so that's Broken Hair and Robert Knox. So, yeah, we've seen like the body snatcher based on the Robert Louis Stevenson short story. We've seen Corridors of Blood. We've seen this idea of grave robbing, of selling bodies to Victorian era doctors. But we haven't actually seen a dramatization of the Birkin Hare case itself. And I feel like no one would know that better than John Gilling, who wrote and directed tonight's movie. See, Gilling was born in London in 1912. Uh, he worked in the oil industry until 17 when he left his job to go to Hollywood and work in the film industry there until he returned to England in 1933 and gained work in British films, starting out as an editor and assistant director, and only becoming a writer and director after the war, uh, during which he served in the British Navy. His third film as a writer was called The Greed of William Hart in 1948, and it was directed by Oswald Mitchell and starred Todd Slaughter and Henry Oscar, like many Todd Slaughter movies before it, it was melodramatic, it was mm -hmm. corny, it had very theatrical style acting, but also like theatrical style sets, very like fake fog, two-dimensional facades, this kind of thing, very cheap. But it was also an historical drama about Burke and Hare. Mm. At least it was until the British Board of Film Censors raised a fuss, basically stating that the murders were a sensitive subject sure. and not something that a sensationalist film should be made about. There was a lot of, like, touchiness. You know, the British film censors were not a fan of horror movies in the 1940s. They had basically banned them. And so the idea of kind of a Todd Slaughter movie about Burke and Hare, as natural as that seems... Um, struck the BBFC as distasteful. So they forced the movie to redub all of the dialogue that had the name William Hare with William Hart. Mm. Burke became Moore and Knox became Cox. Though all of the other names stayed the same. So it was still like pretty obviously Burke and Hare. Um, but it had to not go under those names. Um, and it was released in the U.S. under the title Horror Maniacs. <laughs> okay. We have seen a Todd Slaughter movie in the past. I believe it was uh, Sweeney Todd from 1936. We also saw The Face at the Window from 1939. Yes. Um, so those are episodes 61 and 67 uh, 61 ranked, and then after 67, we kind of were like, mm, no, these are melodrama. Yeah, Todd Slaughter didn't really make horror movies. What he made was Grand Guignol, which is like a related genre, but is sort of halfway between horror and melodrama. Um, technically speaking, I consider like Phantom of the Opera to be Grand Guignol, but our concept of what horror is really depends upon like the context that the movie came out in definitely and so yeah there's this is the reason why we didn't watch the greed of william hart was like it's a todd slaughter movie and we kind of knew by then that that's not what horror movies were by that time mm -hmm. they were very old-fashioned so 12 years later and gilling has directed 23 films with writing credits on even more including 1952's notorious Mother Riley Meets the Vampire, starring Bella Lugosi. Okay. But with the success of the Hammer Horror Pictures, Gilling decided to resurrect his old Burke and Hare script and do it right this time. He partnered with Tempion Films, who had produced the Hammer-alikes Blood of the Vampire and the Trollenberg Terror, also known as The Crawling Eye, uh, in order to create this film and took advantage of a brief period of bad blood between Hammer and Peter Cushing to score him for the role of Dr. Knox, uh, which was interesting because Knox had been one of Cushing's touchstones when creating his interpretation of Baron Frankenstein. Yeah. This time, the BBFC let the filmmakers use the real names of the historical figures, but disallowed them from using the names in the title, and gave the picture an X rating. 
So I think that was kind of a big reason why they were allowed to do it now was there was this X rating where it was like, we can kind of cordon this off. I feel like horror is also very established. Like Hammer has broken barriers with mm-hmm. the BBFC. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's still to me really curious that like 130 years later, there was still people being like, no, it's too soon. You know, that feels so different from our modern day world. I feel like, like, yes, but also, um, I don't know if it was a case of, oh, it's too soon, but more a case of like, oh goodness, a, a real murder being covered in film. Sure. That's yeah. my best, like, British man with a monocle impersonation. Got it. Yeah. So, um, in order to minimize similarities with The Greed of William Hart, as well as a screenplay about Burke and Hare that was floating around at this time by Dylan Thomas, no oh, less. Wild. Uh, the producers brought in writer Leon Griffiths to rewrite the screenplay. Cushing um, adopts, like, a prosthetic of a droopy eye in this movie, which was heavily featured in the like UK posters. And it is not like just a weird, like, Oh, he's a monster kind of like detail. Um, it's actually an historically accurate rendition of Robert Knox who had like lost an eye to syphilis. Oh yeah. In the role of William Hare is an actor. We're going to be talking about for a very long time. Donald Pleasance. I'm afraid his name is not recognizable to me. Uh, So Donald Pleasance is, among other things, um, the bad guy in Fantastic Voyage, Blofeld in You Only Live Twice, the bad guy in THX 1138, and for horror fans, most notably, he is Dr. Loomis in the original Halloween films. Okay. Yeah. I do like that his last name is like Pleasance, but he's in horror movies. Oh, yeah. We're going to be seeing a lot of him for a very long time. You'll probably recognize him once we see him watch the movie. But yeah, like, I don't know. Donald Pleasance is a guy who's been in a lot of movies that I've watched since I was a kid. So I'm very, very familiar with him. Uh, How old were you when you watched THX? Too young. Let's put it that (laughs) way. But the first movie I would have seen him in was You Only Live Twice. Yeah. Um, So Pleasance was born in 1919 in Nottinghamshire. And he was 40 years old when he played William Hare, which was actually like twice William Hare's actual age Mm -hmm. at the time of the murders. Uh, Pleasance was the son of a railway station manager. And after working as a clerk at the railway station for a spell or two, the then 20-year-old Pleasance decided that what he really wanted to do was be an actor. Although he initially registered as a conscientious objector during World War II, he changed his mind after the London bombings and volunteered for the RAF. He became a wireless operator on, like, bombers, and in 1944, his plane was shot down over Austria, and he served time at Stalag Lust I as a POW. After the war, Pleasance acted in theater companies throughout England, eventually making his way to London. From stage to television, he received positive reviews for his performance as Syme in the BBC version of 1984 in 1954. He subsequently appeared as Parsons in the feature film version in 1956. And of course, he co-starred with Peter Cushing as Winston in the TV version. Pleasance was an experienced stage, TV, and film actor by the time he appeared in The Flesh and the Fiends. But this was his first foray into the horror genre that would slowly come to dominate his career in years to come. Do you think that's because he kind of solidified being a character actor? So yeah, like he solidified being a character actor and, you know, appeared as villains often, but really it was him being Loomis in Halloween in the late seventies. Like from that point on, he's basically only in horror movies. Okay. George Rose born in 1920 in Oxfordshire plays William Burke He was 39 years old, playing 36, so a little closer. Rose made his stage debut at the Old Vic in 1946, and he spent the 1950s appearing primarily on stage in comedic or Shakespearean roles. He made his film debut in 1952, so he was quite experienced by 1960. Um, He was very well liked by the theater community. He was very well regarded. Um, He was homosexual, 
And so after retiring to the Dominican Republic in 1984, he expressed like this wish for an heir, someone to pass on his legacy to, uh, including his record collection of 17,000 records. Holy moly. Yeah, he was like a big music expert. So uh, he took in a 14-year-old boy named Juan who had run away from home. And in 1986, he formally adopted Juan. And then in 1988, Juan, his biological father, his uncle, and a family friend murdered George Rose, brutally beating him to death and then placing him in his car, upturning that car on the side of the road and putting cocaine in his pocket to make it look like a car accident. Except Rose didn't drive. He didn't use drugs. And the road was like a straightaway on level ground. So there's no way the car could have upturned like that. So thanks to the determination of a friend and neighbor of Rose, the men were charged, at which point they confessed and they were imprisoned awaiting trial. However, the trial never came. The Dominican Republic is under Napoleonic law. And so there's like a very long process to go through from imprisonment to trial. And due to uh, a high crime rate as well as a high corruption rate, um, 80% of prisoners in the Dominican Republic justice system are awaiting trial. Wow. Um, and so with the lack of a conviction, Juan still legally inherited Rose's estate, which was the purpose for the murder. Yeah. Um, so with that money, he got himself bail and then he moved to the U.S. and then he paid for the release of the others. That is upsetting. Yes. I don't have a good transition out of that story. But uh, Dermot Walsh appears in this film uh, playing Dr. Mitchell. Uh, Walsh was a 35-year-old Irishman who had been scouted by the Rank organization originally. He was an experienced leading man and supporting player. And from 1949 to 1963, he was also married to Hammer-leading lady Hazel Court, with whom he had a daughter. Actress Billy Whitelaw appears as the sex worker Mary Patterson. Uh, she was age 27 when she made this film. She had begun her career as a child actress on the radio at age 11, supporting her family after her father died of lung cancer when she was nine. She made her London theatrical debut in 1950, and her film career really took off after this in the 1960s with acclaimed roles in films like Charlie Bubbles in 1967 and Twisted Nerve in 1969. Her best-known role is probably Mrs. Baylock in The Omen from 1976. She's like the kid's guardian. Um, she's also the voice of Agra in The Dark Crystal, the like big puppet who has the like observatory. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and from 1963 to 1989, she was also the muse of playwright Samuel Beckett, appearing in several plays which he wrote solely for her. Nice. That's that's awesome. I'm loving. We've mentioned Dylan Thomas. Mm -hmm. Now we've mentioned Sam Beckett. Love it. Billy Whitelaw passed away in 2014 at age 82. Andrew Falds, who plays Inspector McCulloch, uh, is known to us from Blood of the Vampire and the Trollenberg Terror. And after 1960s appearances in films like Cleopatra, Jason and the Argonauts, and Chimes at Midnight, he would serve as an MP in the British Parliament from 1966 to 1997. Wow. Yeah. In an uncredited role as a medical student is a very young 22-year-old Stephen Burkoff, years before becoming one of the most acclaimed and groundbreaking theater actors of the late 20th century. Good for him. <laughs> yeah, Burkoff's like a big deal, but he's so small in this movie that like the amount of time I would need to take to explain Stephen Burkoff is just like not worth it. No worries. So The Flesh and the Fiends was released on February 2nd, 1960 in the UK, running 94 Minutes. It was, at the time, a box office disappointment. Oh, no. Garnering poor reviews in the UK, including a critic who said, I can't understand anyone wishing to see this film voluntarily. <laughs> Clearly, he, he couldn't look several decades into the future to our podcast. Mm -hmm. It was released a year later on January 24th, 1961 in the United States under the title Mania. Which I find interesting because I think probably they were trying to play on Psycho, which would have been released by that time. Yeah. But it's very similar to the fact that The Greed of William Hart in 1948 was released in the U.S. as Horror Maniacs. So 
I don't know, just kind of interesting to me. Um, in the US, the film did average business, although it was cut down to 74 minutes. Peter Cushing's performance was praised uh, by Variety as the element holding the picture together. Classic Peter. In recent years, the movie has been critically reappraised as being like a worthy Hammer competitor, and it is available on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber in both cuts. Fantastic. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along with us. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Flush and the Fiends from 1960, directed by John Gilling. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Flesh and the Fiends from 1960, directed by John Gilling. Sarah, what'd you think? Oh, boy. Awooga. We're in the 1960s. It's a spicy meatball. Yes, so many tits. There's so many naked ladies. Whoa. I, I think I know at least... Part of what was in the 20 minutes the Americans cut out. Absolutely. Speaking of which, um, so we were watching this in the uncut version uh, from the recent Kino Lorber Blu-ray. And print quality is all over the map. While we were watching it, it made the editing and cinematography look really sloppy. Um, But I think what's actually going on here is not sloppy editing or poorly exposed scenes or overexposed scenes. I think what we're seeing here more likely is the difficulty of piecing together an uncut version. I'm guessing Kino had to like draw some of these scenes from multiple different sources in order to get us the uncut version of the movie. With that context, it looks pretty dang good. Yeah. Um, You know, this is from an era when like people didn't keep deleted scenes, but um, yeah, I just wanted to make that note because I think watching the movie, you could think like that it wasn't well made. And I don't think that's quite what's happening here. Let me tell the folks at home uh, what plot surrounds the naked ladies. (laughs) Right. Uh, So we follow, um, we have a few main characters here, but we open with Dr. Knox accepting a cadaver from a pair that have just like dropped it off. Uh, And Dr. Knox has his student Chris go off to pay the rest of the money that is owed to these two uh, resurrection men down at this like local tavern. So Knox is... uh, particularly busy right now because he's welcoming back his niece, Martha, who is the love interest to Knox's colleague, Dr. Mitchell. Now, when the student Chris goes to the tavern, we happen to see Burke and Hare. They happen to see how much those other resurrection men get paid. And they're like, man, that's that's such a racket. But boy, would I like that money. While there, Chris helps this uh, sex worker named Mary... Um, because she's kind of like bothered a bit in the tavern. She's getting harassed. She's getting harassed. So she he helps her out. And then while he is out of the tavern, he gets mugged by Burke and Hare. Uh, and so then Mary helps him and they begin a romance. Now back home, uh, Burke discovers that a lodger of his is dead. And so Hare suggests that they take him to Knox uh, and they get paid very well. So they think, oh, perfect. This is going to be a a great thing if we can somehow keep this going. Hmm. Now, as we see Chris and Mary and Mitchell and Martha getting closer, Burke and Hare murder an older woman and then a man who is new in town. And progressively, they keep getting like a little sloppier. Like Mm -hmm. the first lady, they get her really drunk and then they suffocate her. So it's like, you know, plausible deniability. Uh, The man, he's beaten up. 
but they kind of like go, oh, is he bruised? I didn't notice. Yeah. Which gives a lot of good dramatic opportunity for the movie to show that like Knox would kind of have to be an idiot to not realize what's going on. He just doesn't care. Yeah, he looks the other way. Yeah. Now, Chris and Mary's relationship is a little tumultuous because basically Mary feels like she's going to make Chris's life terrible because of her line of work. Reading in between the lines, she's an alcoholic while Chris is trying to, you know, finish medical school. And they're clearly like in love. They do care about each other, but it's just a bit of a tumultuous relationship. And so they end up breaking up. Yeah, she kind of like orchestrates it like... She puts him in a position where he has to leave her in yeah, some way. No, she self-destructs the relationship. Yeah, but she like is doing that knowingly. So she's distraught and drunk and becomes Birkenhair's next victim. Now, while she is about to become the next victim, Hare does try to assault her. So, you know, content warning for the movie. Um, but then he ends up strangling her. And this is particularly notable to me because this is the murder that Hare commits, the other murders have been Burke. With like Hare kind of... Like pulling the strings. Yeah, but manipulating him into it. This is the first time that Hare actually has his hands around a, a murder victim. Yeah. Now Chris discovers that it's Mary's body at the college. And so he puts two and two together and goes after Burke and Hare. Because he knows that that's who is selling bodies to Knox. And he gets stabbed for it. Now, Knox has been a popular lecturer, a popular professor at this college, um, but he hasn't been popular with uh, some stuffy colleagues of his who are on a medical council. Uh, going so far as to, you know, at one point, Knox accuses one of them of murder because of, like, operating... Yeah, negligence. Uh, operating on an aneurysm, thinking it was a tumor or something like that. Yeah, Knox's whole deal is like, he's actually teaching people anatomy so that they can do surgery well. And he has this big like speech about how he's trying to get, we're trying to get rid of quackery in medicine. And so it's kind of implied that like these other guys don't really have the surgical education he's giving these people and are just kind of going off of like, you know, more old fashioned techniques and knowledge. So Mitchell Knowing that these medical council guys have it out for Knox, he's trying to help and convince people that there is no association between Knox and Burke and Hare, including not mentioning that this student, Chris, likely was murdered by Burke and Hare. Mitchell's like doing his PR spin. <laughs> now, as Ben kind of laid out here, Knox believes that the ends justify the means. So even though he's told that, you know, Mary here was Chris's love interest and would likely met a violent end. Uh, he kind of just like pays no mind to it. Now, Mary's friend is concerned that she's gone missing. And this friend also happens to witness a character named Daft Jamie being murdered by Burke and Hare. She calls in the cops, the cops trace the murder to Burke and Hare, and that the body was sold to Knox. Then we get a bit of a classic mob scene uh, for people to come and arrest Burke and Hare. We get a montage sequence of the trial where Hare turns on Burke and Burke is hanged, which is all historically accurate. This means that Hare is let go, but as he's leaving the police station, he gets attacked in an alley and gets his eyes burned out. Uh, I don't know if that's historically accurate. No. Um, Hare just like left town and no one ever heard of him ever again because why Saw would hide you... nor hair of him? Yeah. Yeah. Because um, why would you like... Why call... would you stick around? Well, why would you stick around? But also like in the next town over, why would you still call yourself William Hare? Like, so yeah, he just like vanished. But the fact that he just vanished does, I think, give the movie the freedom yes. to sort of do this kind of dramatic license. Then we also spend some time seeing what happens to Knox. It's made clear that Knox will not be charged, but there's like a mob still like outside his door calling for justice. Knox is brought in front of the medical council and he says that like, I did not do wrong, basically. Um, it's Mitchell who kind of goes to the council and says like, he doesn't say like, hey, come on, Knox is a good guy. He says, 
haven't you all accepted bodies from resurrection men? And haven't you all like had the thought in the back of your mind of like, how did this person actually die? So if you condemn Knox, you're condemning yourselves and the profession. And Knox ultimately doesn't believe that he has been doing wrong until he encounters a little girl who is like, hey, mister, give me some money. And he's like, oh, I don't have any money, but if you come up the block to my house, I can give you some. And she replies, no, you'll take me to Dr. Knox. Uh, and he realizes he's become kind of a, an ogre in his mind of like a boogeyman. And, you know, up through this whole movie, he's been like, I don't think there's a soul. What is a conscience? Like, where's the physical representation of it? And after this, he's like, no, there's clearly a conscience uh, that, like, I have neglected. And so he, he kind of realizes he's done wrong. However, the council exonerates him. And so he is like, well, no one's attending my lectures. What am I going to do? But I'm, I'm going to stick to my schedule. And he goes into the lecture room and is surprised to find that it's full. Um, news travels fast in Edinburgh, uh, and everyone here gives him a bit of a standing ovation when he walks in. And he begins his lecture with the Hippocratic Oath of, like, do no harm to people. So that's the end. I really liked this movie. I felt the ending was a bit too much of, like, but no, let's, like, reinstill confidence in our medical authority <laughs> figures. But otherwise, I think this movie was very well done. Yeah, I think the movie's really good. I agree with you on the ending. Um, the ending soft pedals Knox so much that it kind of becomes unbelievable. Like the actual historical truth is that like, you know, Knox, like you said, in the context saying like continue to practice medicine, but had to move away from Edinburgh because he was too much of a pariah, right? Yeah. And I think... This movie should have ended with the scene with the little girl. The little girl says, you know, yeah, you're going to take me to Dr. Knox. And Knox has this moment where he's like, oh, shit. Like, I'm I'm the boogeyman. And the weight of what he's done kind of finally hits him when he realizes, like, yeah, you're someone the children in the street are afraid of kind of thing. And we get this, like, big wide shot of him on the street, like, dejected, like, walking home. That should have been the ending. Yes. Um, because everything that happens after, like the medical council thing where they exonerate him is played way too much in the movie as if like, you see the, the medical council says you didn't do anything wrong. Therefore, you didn't do anything wrong. When like we know the guys on the medical council are kind of all like self-serving jerks and what's really going on there is the medical profession closing ranks. Yes. Right. And we should have seen that that should have been depicted as like, yeah, you got off, but you got off because of like hypocrisy. Right. And which is a running theme in those characters. Exactly. And then like, as you know, after Burke and Hare get arrested from there until the ending, we see in Knox's lectures, like less and less students attending because he's a pariah, but like, <laughs> Knox gets home. Mitchell gets home. Mitchell delivers the news to Knox that the medical council exonerated him. And yet enough time passed for like, I guess all the students to hear that and make the decision that they were going to come to lecture this morning. Like it just feels really unrealistic that then like suddenly everything is better. Yeah. I, I get what they were trying to do with like ending on something a bit of, um, hopeful and uplifting at the end but yeah it just reads really false with this movie it's definitely horror um i think it is shot very very well you can see some german expressionist influence particularly in the poverty stricken parts of edinburgh uh you can see some m influence yes. um and then you know, as I said, that reestablishment of confidence in our authority figures, which is like, okay, I understand why you're doing this because the rest of the movie has gone so far yeah. with the amount of violence that we see. Um, I think Donald Pleasance and George Rose are both absolutely fantastic. I think saying that this movie is only held together by Peter Cushing is doing a disservice to those two guys. Oh, absolutely. The movie is very good. I think it has a good script. There's definitely like 
a lot of deviations from the historical record. We don't get as many murders, which is fine. It would have gotten repetitive. And like, you know, there's some other things here and there that like, I don't think there was actually an angry mob, but like, no, but it felt very interesting because the movie feels so forward with all mm. the violence and sexuality. And yet we still get a classic mob. Yeah. Like, it was cool. I liked it. Yeah. So, you know, there's some deviations here from historical record, but the sets and costumes are very expansive. They're very detailed. They're very expressive. Like just little details of like how Hare's suit coat, like the sleeve is falling off. Yeah. Like you understand really well that Burke and Hare are not wealthy. Yeah. Right. And by contrasting them, like we see Knox in like his smoking jacket, you know, and and how rich he is, like we get a good sense of the desperation of the poor people in Edinburgh, things like that. I think it also points to the horrors of poverty mm. just as much as it is fully relishing in the horrors of what these men are doing. There's also like a lot of nice kind of black humor, satirical content in the script, you know, with how Knox just like does not care where these bodies are coming from and is so kind of confident in the superior knowledge that his dissections are giving him and his students that like he feels totally comfortable just like mouthing off to everybody at yeah. like public parties. But even with Burke and Hare themselves, there's a lot of really like sly, dark humor, satire, like the two that stick out in my mind. One is very early in the film before they start doing the murders and Burke and Hare are talking about how like they don't have any money and Burke's like, yeah, the missus is telling me that I need to go out and look for a job. And Hare's like, you like, you have to go out and look for a job and you a landlord and everything. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> and then later, like very black humor. Um, so Burke's wife is kind of like their accomplice and when Mary is killed, like she comes into the room, sees the dead body and initially is like, you know, they don't quite say it in these words, but like, hey, did you rape that woman? And Burke and Hare are like, no, 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 no. We just murdered her. And Burke's wife is like, oh, OK, that's fine. I wouldn't stand for like sexual assault in my house, but murder. Yeah, no worries. And it's like, wow, like you really get a sense of kind of how morally destitute these people are. Kind of going back to the horrors of poverty as well. Like I thought they did a good job of showing that just because someone's poor doesn't mean that, that they're terrible. We get a whole range of people mm -hmm. um, without it feeling like too many characters because a lot of people do get killed. Yeah, the horrors of poverty and the way that that can whittle away he someone's humanity and also showing how, as you said, the, the upper class superiority whittles away someone's humanity. By humanity, I mean compassion for other people. Yeah, because they have so much distance from exactly. everyone else, right? They're so um, inured. It really reminded me of this line from a Deep Space Nine episode where they like go back in time it's called like past tense or something. Yes. And Dr. Bashir says something along the lines of like, that it's really hard to understand when it's like what you're doing is causing people to suffer because you've forgotten how to care. Right. That really reminded me of the way that Knox is of the way that Mrs. Burke is like, you've just like forgotten how to care because of your own situation. Mm -hmm. And it, it's really sad. Yeah, I think um, Cushing, Pleasance, Rose, and Whitelaw are all really excellent in their roles. Billy Whitelaw? Yes. Yeah, so she plays Mary. She is so good. Mm -hmm. I think she's as good as Miriam Hopkins in being in a very similar role. Right. Like, different, obviously, but similar in the sense of, like, you're in this relationship and how you interact with someone who is not of your class in this relationship. She's a variant of like the hooker with the heart of gold kind of character, but not quite. She's much more believable. She is like gorgeous and unabashedly sexual in the role, which was interesting just seeing like her as a character kind of be allowed to clearly be someone who's like here for a good time 
like like here for yeah. a good not a long time yeah um, and like the kind of self-awareness she has to be like you know this medical student chris ferguson who's like i'm going to uplift you right i'm going to rescue you from this situation and you're going to be my girlfriend and i'm going to bring us up out of poverty and her being like no like you just i'm like, I'm just like, I love you. I'm not the girl for you. Like, you need to understand this. But she still can't let him go, really. Their whole relationship feels very real, feels very heartbreaking. And particularly because you can see what's going to happen. Oh, yeah. Both in the sense of their breakup and of, like, knowing that she's in the world where Burke and Hare are. Oh, yeah. And she is going to be a victim. And the movie, like squeezes every ounce of drama and heartbreak out of it you like to the point where like it's not like the movie spends an over amount of time on the potential assault or anything but because you are familiar with mary it feels heavier than it would be if it was just some random person i also like that so, you know, after they start dating, Chris is like, hey, promise me you won't go back to the brothel, essentially. And she's like, well, I'll try. Um, and, you know, when she's there, like he goes back to get her and is like, I'm taking you out of here. And that's when she kind of blows up the relationship. I kind of liked that the movie didn't lean too, too hard on presenting Chris as being like in the right for being like angry at her for going back. Like, they're both portrayed as flawed people, I guess. Like, it's just kind of as much of a mistake for Chris to think that he can change this girl. Like, they're both portrayed as flawed. It's a really big pet peeve of mine in movies when some guy falls in love with a sex worker and then immediately after that is, like, angry when she she's a sex, sex worker. worker. Right, and it's like, okay, my dude, come on. Like, have some, self, have some self-awareness yeah. here. Like, where did you meet her? Yeah, I really appreciated that. Like, he seemed almost like understanding that this is the world where she's coming from and she's having a challenging time leaving it. Yeah. I, I liked that her death didn't feel like a punishment for being a sex worker. Yes. It's treated as just like a tragedy. Yes. Right? Um, so that was really good. So she gives this really good performance. Um, Cushing as Knox plays that archetype so well. Yes. It's, I mean, it's very Frankenstein, or at least his version of Frankenstein. Even the like fight with the medical council feels like Revenge of Frankenstein. I really appreciated his performance. It didn't feel repetitive. Like no. I was worried knowing that that was a, a big influence on how he portrayed Frankenstein, I was worried it would feel repetitive or him just like going back to the well. But Cushing is such a good actor that he's going to bring his own spin. It almost felt like he brought a little bit of Sherlock into his performance. Oh yeah. Too. Cause he's so smart, but like he delivers the dialogue he's given here, like so well, like you kind of end up sort of on Knox's side because he's so well-spoken and witty and his put downs are so good, but also He's just so much more entertaining to see as a character because he has the courage of his convictions. Even when they're wrong, I think it is always entertaining as an audience member to watch characters who like have a point of view and believe in it. Um, and it makes him such a much better character to watch than like Boris Karloff's kind of self-delusional version of this character from Corridors of Blood, where like the entire plot bent over backwards to make him completely innocent of everything. Yeah. Where it was like, oh, he's just a sweet old man and he doesn't know what he's doing because he's, he's taking old. and he's taking his own drugs. And so he's only evil when he's high and like whatever, blah, blah, blah. Like I much prefer Cushing here, who like absolutely knows what's going on and just like doesn't care. And yeah, you're totally right about the strength that Pleasance and Rose bring to the movie. Like, obviously, they're kind of the centerpiece here, really. And you can see why Donald Pleasance did well playing villains or appearing in horror movies. Like, Rose mm -hmm. is good as Burke, but Pleasance is magnetic as hair. The way he controls his 
like eyes and the expression around his eyes is like chilling. <laughs> yeah, he has this really great thousand yard stare. He also has this really good for horror like soft voice. Yeah. Like where he's just kind of always sort of calm and nothing bothers him, but he still has this like incredible intensity about everything. And I also really liked the little moments when stuff did bother him, like that the movie took the time out, even though it's not plot relevant to be like, yeah, he's afraid of rats. Yeah. And things like that, like these little details. And it's in their performances, I feel, that Pleasance and Rose make it clear that like Burke is a rotten crook. But Hare is a psychopath. Yes. Um, the violence that the two display is kind of eye-opening in how much of it is on screen and to what level of detail the movie is willing to go. Like, this movie is not afraid to get grisly. Yeah, so when they kill the first person, um, the old lady who they get drunk and then they suffocate, we know that it's Burke suffocating her and we can see kind of like their shadow but we're focused on Hare's staring at the crime and we do intercut to see the suffocation but it was like really intense for the first murder and it felt like that intensity for the murders was sustained it didn't Mm. go like with a bang and then kind of downhill which sometimes some of these movies can do it's it's a small thing But something I noticed about the first murder of Abigail is like, how to put this? We see her die. Yes. Like we've seen, so so strangling or suffocation has been like a favorite of movie murderers in horror for a long time because it was sort of um, vague enough that it could get around the fact that the production code says like you can't show exact methods of murder. Yeah. Um. It, it's also like fairly easy to act out. Yeah. You don't need to worry about props or like a spurt of blood. And you can like grab someone's throat. And then what usually would happen in these movies is you'd grab their throat and then both of you would kind of slowly fall out of camera and we'd be looking at a blank wall while you hear someone go like, blah. Um, but here we're like on it the whole time to the point where like, like Abby's eyes are open when she dies. And we just like see the moment when she goes from, you know, being alive to not being alive anymore right on camera. And that felt sort of new Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. You can really feel also the German expressionism come in when we are with the death of daft Jamie, Mm -hmm. um, because he gets suffocated in the mud and it's like in a pig pen. So there's like these, uh, the gates kind of framing a lot of the action And it also feels particularly powerful because that's the murder that is witnessed by um, Mary's friend uh, who then like runs off and gets help. And so you see her horror with it all as well. So, and it's also like the loudest of the murders. Oh yeah. 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 Um, I don't know. They just do a really good job of upping the ante in a different way. Every time that they are doing a murder. So it doesn't feel repetitive. The movie is also not afraid to get body. But like, what do you... <laughs> B-A-W-D-Y. Okay. I was confused because we've been talking about murdered bodies mm. and naked bodies. Yeah, so I'm talking about the naked bodies. Like, it was shocking to me, the amount of full frontal nudity in this movie. We went from one topless woman in one scene of The Man Who Could Cheat Death, which was the first, like, topless scene in a British mainstream movie... And that was like a few months ago, like four months ago or something in 1959. And then we go from that to this movie, which has multiple scenes of fully naked women just walking around in the brothel. Lots of toplessness, but like there is also like a couple of just fully naked women. And it just feels like... We've opened the floodgates. Exactly. Welcome to 1960. Yeah, it's like there was no ramping up. It was like... You know, Man Who Could Cheat Death came out with its one topless scene in it. And, you know, this movie's obviously trying to be a hammer knockoff, right? But it's like, they looked at that and they were like, you know what's better than one topless woman? Multiple. Multiple topless women. I Um, think this definitely succeeds in coming off as a hammer horror knockoff. mm -hmm. But I think it's strong enough that it honestly could kind of be on its own. Uh, Yeah, I think... 
one of the things I like about it is the way that like Edinburgh felt like a place. Yeah. Um, and the like Knox's house feels like a place. Like it didn't just how it didn't feel cheap, I guess like a lot of knockoffs, you expect them to feel cheap. I'm glad that you're pretty sure this is horror. Cause I wasn't, mm. I was kind of on the fence because on the one hand, literally every story beat in this movie is something we've seen in a horror movie right up until the like mob, right? Like the torch wielding mob. But I wasn't, it like didn't quite feel like a horror movie to me. It felt, you know, like a historical drama. And I wasn't sure if the movie was like trying to scare me enough to be a horror movie. It was like this weird overlap between like a true crime Mm. drama and a horror movie and a historical drama. And I wasn't sure quite if it was horror, even though like going down the list of things that happened, it's like, these are all things that happen in horror movies. So I couldn't put my finger on why it quite didn't feel like horror. But after hearing you talk about it, I'm, I'm okay with saying like, yeah, okay, cool. This is horror. Yeah. The way that I feel like it relishes in depicting events that truly horrify you Mm. it's a horror movie sure rather than a true crime of like and then we're going to follow the inspector tracking them down oh yeah the inspector's a super minor character yeah yeah Yeah, very Uh, true very true so he's barely here and then i think um the fact that it montages through the trial shows that it's not too concerned about true crime right it started to feel like did you get lost in the way on like the melodramatic road here? Yeah, with the um, romances. Well, not so much the romances because I think they make sense, particularly mm. with the fact that Mary gets murdered and then Chris gets murdered. <laughs> we see him die on screen too. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it was when it was going through the medical council because the pacing just like boom, stop. Sure, yeah, you yeah. Stop that momentum and everything. And so I completely agree with you that it should have ended with Knox. Me- talking to that little girl but the fact that it doesn't it's because i think the movie is like no we need to reestablish. well two reasons one we need to reestablish some like confidence in our authority figures but also it clearly is wanting to kind of stick to that historical fact and so knox was exonerated sure sure but i also think a big part of it is just wanting after all of that the audience to come out of the movie feeling a little bit better about things. Yeah. Because like they go pretty far. Yeah. But you know, speaking about the romances being well done, there's a really good example of well done, but like not in your face plotting that happens in this movie. It, Cause it feels totally natural to the story, which is Chris, you know, wants Mary to be his like legit girlfriend. He's going to, bring her up out of poverty and introduce her to polite society. And so he takes her out to like the park where there are other people on their dates, including Mitchell and Martha, the Knox's niece. And they meet Chris and Mary. And this leads to like a very predictable scene where she feels super, where he feels really embarrassed by her and she's offended by that. And they have a big fight afterwards. But that also is key So that when Mary's body is brought in and Chris sees it and just like runs out of there on a mission to go confront Burke and Hare, Mitchell can actually go to Knox and be like, hey, this is Mary Ferguson's like girl. And that lets like Mitchell start putting these pieces together. So it's really well plotted in that sense. On the other hand, in some ways, Mitchell and Martha feel like an appendix they feel really vestigial to this movie like they are the you know happy young breeding couple who like make it out romantically in the end but like you could cut martha out of this movie and nothing would change you could mostly cut mitchell out and only have to change like a few things like they're just here because someone thought that there should be some characters who either aren't murderers or don't get murdered. Yeah. I think that's a case of uh, them trying to balance out what they've thought was too horrific. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's vestigial at this point. So let's move on to ranking for sure. I have kind of a spot. Oh, interesting. I did pick out a range. um, Even though I wasn't sure if this was going to count as horror. I just, you know, gotta be 
prepared. So let's see if your spot ends up in my range. Okay. I do want to point out, um, so we've mentioned the body snatcher from episode 130. That is currently ranked at number 17. And then we've also mentioned corridors of blood from episode 256. That did not rank. And the other movie that kind of came to mind with this movie because of the way that the ending kind of went a little bit off the horror path is Beast with Five Fingers at 136. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at least this movie doesn't undercut itself by being like, funny shit. (laughs) Funny joke. So I didn't really have like a strategy trying to pick out my ranking here. Um, It was mostly influenced by the fact that I, I, because I had that uncertainty about whether this was horror, I felt it shouldn't rank as highly as like movies where I was definitely sure about the genre. I think part of that is coming from when you're adapting historical facts, like there are changes to the historical record here, but they are here to make this a more entertaining or like better paced movie. They don't feel like they're here to funnel this into the horror genre. And I think the advantage of a movie like The Body Snatcher is that it's based on a short story that was inspired by Birkenhair, but it's a new story so we can really like nail the horror genre aspect. So I was looking down the list and I just kind of kept looking until I found a space that felt right. So I made my ceiling white reindeer because I think with the like folkloric sort of ghost story feeling of white reindeer, that made it feel more definitively horror than the flesh and the fiends. So that's 55. Yes. And then looking down from there, um, my floor was back from the dead. Uh, number 64, um, because I think this movie is like tighter plotted, you know, makes more sense, doesn't feel like as kind of sloppy and full of holes as that movie does. Mm -hmm. So my range was 56 to 64, essentially here. Yeah, when I was trying to figure things out, um, I kind of, you know, started with the body snatcher, where's quarters of blood, beast with five fingers, and those are all over, so they yeah. were no help. Yeah. But I knew that I was going to go below Body Snatcher for the same reasons that you've brought out here. And so then I was like, well, what was like one of our other non-Hammer horror movies mm-hmm. that we saw? And um, that would be Horrors of the Black Museum. Right. Which is currently ranked at 77. This movie surpasses that Oh yeah. in spades. Yeah, yeah. Looking above, there's Dead of Night. Mm-hmm. At 69, which I believe was our first British horror movie. No. No. it. Uh, but I remember it was like significant and it had like that framing narrative, which was like pretty spooky. But then it had like different segments that some were better than others. Which is the, the bane of the anthology film. Yeah. Um, and I was like, you know what? I think this is better than Dead of Night. Uh, even though that movie, like it has like that puppet movie, that yeah. puppet segment. Yeah, yeah. Dead of Night is good, but you know, uneven. Yeah. Looking up from there, I also came to The Screaming Skull mm-hmm. and White Reindeer. Mm-hmm. And The Screaming Skull as like fun and weird and all over the place it is. Um, I was like, well, this movie has more horrific things that happen in it. But also, The Screaming Skull is more solidly horror. Yeah. It's a ghost story. Yeah. I knew it was definitely not going to go above The White Reindeer, so I'm kind of in and around 56. Great. Um, Which one is Bore Kaibyo Yashiki? Uh, Isn't that Ghost Cat Mansion? Yes, that is Ghost Cat Mansion. Uh, Black Cat Mansion. Right. Sorry. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So I think this should go above... Black Cat Mansion, um, which is a movie we really enjoyed and had a lot of fun with and had a really cool like flashback structure and did a lot of really cool, interesting things. But there's sort of like an inherent goofiness yes. to it that like, which makes it a lot of fun. But like this movie does not have. This movie is here to be grisly, basically. Push your buttons. So I'm thinking basically below Screaming Skull, above Bore Kaibyo Yashiki. Cool. Love it. Do it. Awesome. Entering the list at the new number 57 then is The Flesh and the Fiends, a.k.a. Mania. Um, Also, a.k.a. The Fiendish Ghouls. That was the title it was put on US TV under. From 1960, 
directed by John Gilling. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.com. You can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr or reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed, and you can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review on the podcasting app of your choice if it allows you to do that. Those things help boost the show in algorithms so that new people can find the show. Um, If you want to play a more direct role in helping new people find the show, just tell them about it. Tweet about the show. Tumble about the show. That's not what you're supposed to say. Talk to people about it IRL. It's a good show, and if you enjoy it, find a friend who would like it. Let them know about it. We really appreciate that. Uh, We also really appreciate those of you who can make a financial contribution to the show. It helps us with hosting fees. It helps us with taking the time out to do these episodes, and we really appreciate it. You can help the show out financially by going to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the five and $10 level get access to regular bonus content, but patrons at all levels get to vote in our horror adjacent bonus episode polls. Uh, The one for May is over. We're watching zombies on Broadway, which is a pseudo sequel to white zombie. If I'm remembering correctly, or maybe it's, I walked with a zombie either way. It's got Bella Lugosi in it. Uh, it'll be a lot of fun. A poll for June is going to come up soon, and that's going to be our 24th horror-adjacent episode. So it's 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 special. It's a special one. Uh, so if you want to get in on all that and all the announcements coming out of Castle Scream Scene, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we're watching a movie I don't know a single thing about. It's called The Hypnotic Eye. Ah, well, I'm sure we'll find out more about it before we record, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.